0: features
1: You're listening to the Lyric Feature on RTÉ Lyric FM. Hello and welcome to the Lyric Feature. It's good to be back in our Sunday slot after the summer break. And appropriately enough, our first feature of the new season concerns Thoughts of Home. What is it like to be an Irish poet in England? How does it influence your work? your relationship with language and your thoughts of home. These are some of the questions explored in this evening's Lyric Feature when Vona Grork is in conversation with four fellow Irish poets all living and working in England. This is Writing Yourself Home.
2: Music from home. Six inches of weather, New Year's Eve. I drain a tumbler of homespun and plump up sentiment like a goose down pillow. The blue flame of the gas fire sputters its notion of frost in countdown to the time lag pip of midnight's cheap champagne. The lines are down. The radio warns that secondary roads are nigh impassable. Come the tune, the first notes of the opening year's slow air the blue lights of the Melodian Stipple two provinces, a river, slip of sea And the fiddle in all its finery Leans into silver promises It cannot hope to keep Rourke and I'm an Irish poet. In 2004 I moved to the US and in 2007 from there to Manchester in the UK. I'm not alone. The list of Irish poets who live or have lived in the UK is not a short one. In this programme I'll meet four Irish poets who've made their homes in England and together we'll be talking about the idea of home as a practical and imaginative resource and thinking about our place in the language and the country and what it means to us to have made a home there.
3: My name is John McAuliffe. I'm from Lestol in North Kerry, and I live in Manchester, and I've lived there for nearly 20 years.
2: John is my colleague at the University of Manchester, where we both teach at the Centre for New Writing. John was already teaching at the university when I arrived in 2007. Like so many of us, it was work that first brought him to the UK.
3: My wife and I moved to England initially to London um, to follow her work because she was doing some medical research in London. But after a couple of years in London, which we found very difficult to afford on civil servant salaries, we moved north to Manchester. Um, so I was teaching at the university from 2004. Did you think it was a temporary move? We definitely thought it was a temporary move. We... Um, we we were we were happy to leave ireland at the time we wanted adventure we wanted to travel but whether we were going to stay in the uk or whether we were going to travel to other places was always something that we had in mind but our children started school in the city and i guess that really put our roots down for us
2: and did you choose manchester because it is such an irish city
3: were you looking for a kind of ireland away from ireland we did not. We chose uh, Manchester purely because it was where work was. You know, I've been working various uh, part-time jobs for years in uh, Dublin and Cork and Galway, um, and so the chance of being able to work permanently at something and to have a kind of a secure structure for writing was really all, all I was after. And uh, the university was able to offer me that, and so it was so easy to travel, so cheap to travel. I could travel from Kerry to Manchester on Ryanair over to Fire and Four. Um, Over and back on the ferry was really straightforward and there was a very, very different um, environment I think any of the earlier generations in Manchester had known.
2: And you grew up in Listowel, so being able to fly to Kerry and back again in a weekend and cheaply and, what, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. So did that mean that in the way that people in the 50s, when they came to Manchester, they would have immediately known that they were somewhere else and that they were other, in a sense? And did you feel that sense of otherness or did you feel like you were on loan to Manchester from Kerry?
3: Manchester is a very multi-ethnic city, I think and it's full of immigrant populations. So the Irish population, you know, where uh, we lived was still strong, but there was an African population, there was a Japanese population, there is an Asian population as well around us. It wasn't just Ireland and England, I guess, is what I'm saying. And it just, it felt like um, that sort of melting pot city. And flying back to Ireland also began to change at the same time. So it was more mixed up and less binary than that. And that's something that travel and modernity, Uh, made possible. Well would
2: you read for us the poem The Places because I think that picks up on some of what you've just said
3: there but puts it down in a poem. This poem is set in Manchester and it's uh, a poem which describes that feeling of being able to access different places at the same time but then it comes home (laughs) about which places is not to hand the places. But she is miles away the laptop's elbow in front of her, the phone squirreled into her pocket, still peeping out. The places I call her from as distant as the town, to whose blue mood I return every year, with its special combinations of cloud. On the line are delicates, the rain is on the point of coming for. The river below rising, and no through road. Back up. and This picture defaults to a room which is not all there. Partial, screened, it is hum and glow and pings. Tired, hungry, evening's subjunctive moods, colour, questions and commands. Either and or, descending from kitchen and sofa into the old woods our vanishings are lost on. The bare lawn and sudsy river. Will we go? Remember parking the car on the pier? The kettle? The moon? Come on, this will still be here.
0: My name is Martina Evans and um, I'm from the village of Burnfort in County Cork and I've been living in London since 1988.
2: Work was also a factor in Martina's move to the UK but it wasn't the only one. With all of these things in life there's probably many reasons why we moved but
0: one of the reasons was I was married then and my ex-husband got a job in London and I think we felt most of our friends had left anyway in the 80s and I think it was kind of... It seemed more exciting to go to London. And Were you already writing when you moved to London? I wanted to be a writer but I did feel that I would have to put the RSC between me and um, my family and everything. I felt... I've been too embarrassed to say it then because it sounded like I was trying to be James Joyce or something.
2: But I did feel I needed to get away to write. And when you got away and you started writing, did you find that you were returning to the same family and the same place Mm -hmm. and the same kind of culture that you'd grown up with? Tell me about it. And I think not only
0: um, does the home country become extra charged and kind of magical, um, I don't mean in a kind of a... Nostalgic, fuzzy way. I mean, it just has more charge. The other thing that happened to me was when I moved to London was there was an awful lot of publicity around the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six.
1: The Birmingham Six were jailed following an attack on two pubs in Birmingham City Centre in 1974. The bombings left 21 people dead and 167 others seriously...
0: And I experienced a lot of racism because the IRA were bombing the mainland, as they like to call it, and, um... I found myself having to stand up for the Irish, um, explain history, but I was very fuzzy about Irish history and I found myself going back to the history books, because I I might get into an argument or discussion in the staff room, I was a radiographer, Um, I was like so surprised how little they knew about Ireland, how little they knew about the history and how different my my whole knowledge of Anglo-Irish
2: history was. So, Martini, you had a professional life as a radiographer in Dublin and in London, and you have a professional life as a poet. And uh, I wonder, would you read your poem, Clinical Indications, which seems to to bring these two together? Clinical Indications. OH was
0: shorthand for the chemical equation C2H5OH, ethanol meaning alcohol, a tip-off from the doctor, a coded message to say drink was involved the patient was drunk the radiographer far away in a deserted x-ray department at night had to watch out for the upstreppers it might have been shorthand for irish but how could they scare me when i only had to lay my cork accent like a wand on their ears once i puzzled over a request form for a chest x-ray that gave one word irish in the clinical indications box was it a joke or working backwards, shorthand for the drink or drunk, or look out for the telltale fractures of the third metacarpal from frustrated petties punching walls, for the bilaterally healed rip fractures of the older laboring immigrants who got so plastered they fell down, broke, healed, and carried on? The stigmata inside the coats of their skins, like the rays from a sacred heart. Or did it mean what I never understood? That night, the young doctor with the black moustache too close to me at 2am, his breath in my ear, whispering, something has to be done about the Irish. They're spreading TB, spitting it on the floors in Kilburn. I'm scanning another man's head so I can't move away from the smell of his watsits. I look straight ahead while through the microphone on the other side of the glass, my voice echoes. Keep still, you're doing brilliant to Mr. McNamara, yards away, terrified on a moving table.
4: My name is Conor O'Callaghan. I am a poet and a novelist, and I live in Sheffield, Dublin and Portugal.
2: Like myself, Conor came to the UK via the US. Some might call it the scenic route.
4: I moved to England in 2007. I was living in North Carolina up until then, But if I'm honest, much as I liked America and North Carolina, I found cultural life in America just far too boring. So having planned to stay in America indefinitely after two years, I moved, I got a job in Sheffield, in Sheffield Hallam University. And I moved to the north of England then and lived in Manchester and have been living in England ever since.
2: And did you find England less
4: boring? Oh yeah, significantly less boring, definitely. Um, Much more of a cultural life, much more fun, much more to do and much more conversation with people. Um, We lived in Manchester, which is obviously in England, but it is a very Irish city and it felt very familiar. And I liked that greatly. I have since moved to Sheffield and I find the Yorkshire thing really... Very different. It's very close. It's only about fifty miles away, but I find it very blunt and very dour quite humourless. You can trust everything that they say, but it, no, it generally won't be witty, and it won't be. It won't necessarily be terribly kind.
2: Am I right in getting from you a sense that you felt Irish amongst Irish people in Manchester, and then you felt in Sheffield Irish amongst Yorkshire people?
4: Yeah, I've never felt more Irish in my life than I have living in England. I get my Irishness referenced all the time. Initially, I found it kind of slightly irritating. I realised to some extent that my Irishness has become slightly stagey, almost to play up to the expectations of what an English person expects an Irish person to be. I went home to Dundalk recently and... I've tried to buy fishing tackle in a shop in Dundalk and they thought I was from the west of Ireland and I found that really horrifying and slightly hurtful. So I realised that the experience of living in England and being Irish in England had sort of rounded my accent off at the edges. I think when I left Dundalk I talked like this all the time but I don't talk like that anymore. Um, I have this sort of very sort of generic smooth-at-the-edges Irish accent.
2: I'm not sure we think all that much about what it means to be Irish when we're in Ireland. It would be a bit like thinking about what it means to be wet while we're swimming in the ocean. But living in England, we hear our own accents differently and we're conscious of how, to paraphrase Joyce in A Portrait of the Artist as a young man, the language is theirs before it is ours. In so many ways, we live in that difference and allow it to frame and define us. It would be hard not to live inside our heartfelt Irishness here. But sometimes there's a shift. We might recalibrate almost without noticing that's exactly what we've done. Sometimes it's a matter of years and sometimes it might be a single experience, a moment when an adopted home feels closer and more immediate than a country named on a passport does, or a glib answer to an automatic question. When the present, you could say, outweighs the past and demands you attend to it.
3: Your experience of of trauma and your experience of um, long friendships and your experience of other people's um suffering as well as their joys in a place brings a place into a sort of a new reality for you. We're just getting a report now from Greater Manchester Police who are now saying that there have been uh, confirmed a number of fatalities following reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena. So Greater Manchester Police now saying that some people have- There was something that I thought about quite a bit around the time of the uh, Manchester Arena bombings. Classmates of our children had been at the concert, and this sudden, shocking sense of an action constellating people together in a way that is unexpected did bring home uh, my sense of the city. And also, I, I sort of I knew peripherally a lot of people who were who were there um, that night.
2: So, John, could I ask you, maybe at this point, would you read for us an extract from City of Trees about the Manchester Arena bombing?
3: The summer nights demand updates we write to friends about our kids the schools stay open as they process classmates tales of sleeping in a hotel overnight the footage of a man with luggage on wheels buying bits and pieces in a corner shop circulates this watchful ex-student born here ill at ease walking through the may weeks of the trees slow green explosions the air thick with willow pollen and honeysuckle all invisible in the greyscale's pixel-rendering of the place, scrambling it even as crowds gather elsewhere, in shops and bars and streets, to shoot the breeze, watch a match on telly and follow their phones, as I do, student of uprootings and aftermath, hemmed in by the information which descends on us like summer rain. In this, the final open volume of my report... I deal with three topics. The radicalisation of Salman Abedi, the planning and preparation for the attack by Salman Abedi and Hashim Abedi, and whether the attack could have been prevented...
5: I'm Sinead Morrissey, and at the moment I live in Morpeth, Northumberland. I moved there in July 2017. Before then, I was living in Belfast, and uh, Belfast is the city where I grew up and I moved to Morpeth in Northumberland because I got a job at Newcastle University.
2: You're a little unusual in terms of the other writers that I'm talking to for this programme because you've come from one part of ostensibly the UK to another part of ostensibly the UK, so you're not coming from the Republic of Ireland to England as such. It's a little bit of a a different relationship. So um, was it a dramatic move for you Sinead or was what you found in the north of England in any way recognisable from what you had already experienced in Belfast?
5: Yeah I think it was quite a dramatic move and I think while Belfast seems ostensibly British to the eye you know with the colour of the post boxes and the transport systems and you know, all of that kind of insignia, it's its own unique place. So a lot of people said to me before I left, oh, you'll find it, you know, you'll find it very familiar. The Geordies are so friendly. It's a great shipbuilding city, et cetera, et cetera. And I did find it very different. I think. I think Northern Ireland is very different from Southern Ireland. And I think it's also very different from England. Sinead's parents were committed
2: communists. And while most people growing up in Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s would have memories of hours spent in a Catholic or Protestant church, Sinead's memories are of Communist Party meetings. And there's another factor that
5: makes her different from the other poets in this programme. I was really aware as a very small child that I was half English and half Irish. I had an English grandmother in Derbyshire, who I loved deeply and was very close to growing up. And then I had my whole kind of Irish grandparents on the Falls Road in Belfast. And I called them in my head, you know, my English grandmother and my Irish grandmother. And when I was, you know, when I was small, I felt that there was a a line that ran up the centre of my body and half of my blood on one side of my body was one colour and half of my blood on the other side of my body was another colour. And it was like this half-half all the time. You're... Memoir that you're working on now, Seeing Red,
2: is I take it a prose memoir? Yes. Okay, so has the 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 switch from, well it's not a switch, but the temporary switch, let's call it that, the temporary move from poetry to prose, is that anything to do with you moving from Belfast to the North of England or or is it just coincidental?
5: I think it is to do with the move. I think it's to do with dramatic changes in my own life. Um my marriage ended, so I am, I am together with my children now. That's a major change in my life. And I think poetry, I have a sense that poetry belongs to a vanished me. The move and then the change in my personal circumstances, it felt to me that the only writing place I could go was prose. Does that feel like a comfortable place, prose? Is it helpful? No, it's very hard for me to write prose. (laughs) But it's so hard to produce that many sentences. I'm not used to writing at length. I'm not used to producing language at length. Um, But I am enjoying the roominess at the end of the page, at the end of the right-hand margin. I am enjoying that, and I'm enjoying trying to work with the sentence as the primary unit of meaning, rather than the line. That's what I'm enjoying. Feeling my way into this expanded space. So I spend, when I'm writing, I spend, you know, eight hours a day back in Belfast. I recognise
2: this impulse to write ourselves home. Perhaps the place that is lost to us physically, however temporarily, is the place our mind wants to colour in and recover. Sinead writes herself right back to Belfast in the roominess of prose and the elasticity of the sentence. Back to the party meetings and the smoky rooms. Back to the city's iconic signifier. Back into the shadow thrown over the city by the bulkhead of the Titanic.
3: Having completed the largest and best Titanic visitor attraction now available anywhere around the globe, the city that designed, built and launched the legendary transatlantic liner is now ready to tell the world its Titanic story.
2: But where so many writers are drawn to the end of that particular story, Sinead focuses on the beginning, on the excitement of the launch. Her poem, The Millie Helen, takes its title from an invented word. If Helen was the face that launched a thousand ships... A Millie Helen is the amount of physical beauty
5: required to launch a single ship. The Millie Helen. It never looks warm or properly daytime in black and white photographs, the sheer cliff face of the ship still enveloped in its scaffolding, backside against the launching cradle ladies lining the quay in their layered drapery touching their gloves to their lips and just as they that go down to the sea in ships rises from choir boys mouths in wisps and snatches and evil skitters off and looks askance for now A switch is flicked at a distance, and the moment swollen with catgut about to snap with ice picks, hawk swings, pine needles, eggshells, bursts, and it starts, grandstand of iron, palace of rivets, starts moving, starts slippery, sliding down, slow as a snail at first in its viscous passage, taking on slither and speed, gathering in the atlas-capable weight of its own momentum. Tonnage of grease beneath to get it waterborne, tallow, soft soap, train oil, a rendered whale. This last, the only Millahelen, her beauty slathered all over the slipway. Faster than a boy with a ticket in his pocket might run alongside it, the bright sheet of the lock advancing faster than a tram heavy chains and anchors kicking in lest it outdoes itself straining up to a riot of squeals and sparks lest it capsizes before its beginning lest it drenches the aldermen and the ship Sits back in the sea as though it were ordinary and wobbles ever so slightly. And then it and the sun splash tilted hills, the railings, the pinstriped awning. In fact, everything regains its equilibrium.
2: Like Sinead, Conor O'Callaghan has also shifted over to prose since moving to the UK currently working on his third novel, his five poetry collections, each in different ways, explore his ties to his past and family, to history and to place.
4: The feeling of leaving poetry and defecting to prose is not unlike the feeling of being an exile out of one's home place. And the thing that I've always felt about exile is... When you leave, like usheen and Tiernan Oak, when you leave Ireland and you go somewhere else, you never entirely arrive at the other place and you realise that there's no way back. And I feel the exact same about prose.
2: Exile is a strong word and a heady one. We say we have been exiled. We don't say that we exile ourselves. It's a noun, not a verb, a state, not a process. We don't talk about unexile. There's emigration and immigration, but there's no exile. The word islands us, leaves us high and dry. I asked Connor to read a passage from his novel, We Are Not in the World, that is about this to and fro, that really, when it comes down to it, lacks the fro. It's a strong passage that challenges the usual emigrant sentimentality. A view you don't often hear expressed, with a kick to
4: it. This is the narrator's daughter telling her father to return to Ireland, which he is reluctant to do. Go home, she says. Hazardous territory, this, for her as much as me. The last thing in the world I want to hear from her. She knows it. It sounds like she's been working up to saying this. And now she has brought herself, finally, to saying, Home. Do. The old sod. You know you want to. Forgive me, darling, but that's a crock of shit. I have to take deliberate even breaths to stop myself from shouting. Give me this, a fucking nog, any day of the week. Daddy, she says. Fat chance. For me. I pull the phone from its holder on the dash. I stab down the power button and swipe it to off. I really should go in before Carl gives up on me and gets Law involved. Go home. To Ireland. That's seriously what you're asking of me. For me. I hate the place. I say this to her. I loathe it, love. You know this. I loathe its tinny, folksy junk. The treatly export-only sentimental piss.
2: In some way, is it easier to express the sharp, wounded, pity attack that you have in that section of the novel than it is to express the affection, the love, the sense of being at home, the sense of being at one?
4: I think that's absolutely true. I don't hate Ireland. I love it. I love coming home. But I love leaving it too now. The frustration you feel with Ireland and Irishness is much more easy to articulate. The love that we feel, that I feel for Ireland, and I absolutely do, it's much more nebulous and it is much more difficult to access and to articulate in a way that isn't sentimental. And I suppose that is part of the problem. A love of nationhood is always problematic because it leads to um kind of a, a version of politics that can be abhorrent but it's also the expression of love for ireland from exiles has been sentimentalized so much especially in america that it is very difficult to find a version of that expression that it feels truer and that isn't sentimental and that also recognises the double edge of one's one's relationship with the place.
2: It's tricky to think of the experience of being Irish in England as entirely ahistorical or, indeed, apolitical. We live in a complex relationship that we often flatten to a platitude or a playful taunt, a sports chant or a tussle over an actor's nationality. But we know it's more complex than that. Never more so than in 2016, when the iron crowbar that was Brexit threatened to make the distance between our realities, our differences, more pronounced than ever. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Local totals from all 382 voting areas have now been certified and announced, and I have therefore been able to certify the results of the referendum on the UK's membership of the European Union.
3: Brexit was such an absolute shock for those of us who had lived dreamily um, through the 2000s in England and who had lived through, I suppose, the, the benefits of a new Labour government as well in many ways in the north of England, which kind of pushed resource in that direction. And then as that resource got withdrawn and as the northern cities became fraught and poorer, I can see now the factors that led to a, a kind of um, the Brexit vote, but it, it caught me by surprise. I was absolutely certain that it would be carried.
0: I think Brexit was surprising for me. It was only very near the end I realised it was going to happen because living in London and with everybody I knew, everybody I knew was a Remainer.
4: The Brexit thing has been a source of nothing but horror. One of the things in general that I've noticed culturally is it has legitimised an element of casual racism. That I see people shouting at people on streets in a way that simply didn't happen in the past. The people may have felt these things, but they didn't feel entitled to verbalise those feelings.
5: I was appalled by the result of the referendum. I was horrified by what it might mean for Northern Ireland. I felt completely alienated from that decision. I had a a lot of grief, I think, around Brexit. I feel it was a completely unnecessary disenfranchisement. That's how I feel about, about it and about this kind of severing of a European heritage that is so, so important. You know, I connect to Europe. I learnt German at university. I've spent a lot of time in Europe and I think a lot of the EU ideals are, are positive ideals and just this sense of ever increasing islandedness is something I'm, I'm kind of wary of, where that goes and where that ends up.
2: The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,742. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. I don't think there's much argument now that Brexit was a response to lies and misinformation about a disparate set of problems that were never going to be resolved by that single decision. But it was a vote arising out of a culture of suspicion of otherness and also, I suspect, from the complex challenge of being a nation made up of four distinct countries each with their own identities and sensibilities. Brexit was and is a classic distraction strategy. To us in Ireland, it seemed inexplicable and it made me think that I might prefer to live somewhere more interested in cohesion and resolution than old grudges and prejudices. I decided to move back. I wanted to be somewhere less likely to blindside me than post-Brexit Britain. I wanted to come home. They're small words, come home, but they're rarely easy ones. I asked John McAuliffe about what they might mean to him on a visit back to Galway. So, John, we're here in a room in NUIG, high up in the tower with the seagulls skulking outside, and at a certain point of your life, these rooms were very familiar to you. Is it strange, this sense of return?
3: Yeah, it's very strange to be back here in these old offices in Galway, which is where I studied for a BA and then also for an MA. Um, And one of the funny things, I suppose, about emigrant life is coming back to places which look the same, and yet things have changed all around you. So you have this amazing sense of doubleness, of having access to the past, at the same time as being um, immersed in something completely different.
2: And that strangeness that you mentioned, that doubleness, is that something that you try to work out in poems?
3: It definitely is. The strangeness that of recognition and surprise is something I've always loved about art. I've loved it about novels and about poems um, and about paintings. That sense of seeing something that I half recognise, but which then moves me on from what I recognise into something else.
2: Martina Evans has carried with her to London, the voices of Burnfort in County Cork, where she grew up. The whole time I was in Burnfort, I was in books, and you wouldn't think I'd heard anything, Um, but they were the voices I took with me. The voices were language combined with accent, accent being a way to burrow inside a language. It personalises the objective facts of words in a dictionary, then filters them through a body, makes them at home. For writers, maybe their primary home will be always found in language, but that doesn't mean the less abstract homes are any the less important. I find it very hard to be torn away from my physical home.
0: You know, I I get very anxious leaving home.
2: Is London the place that you think of when you hear
0: the word home? Oh, London is what I hear. Home is where the cats are.
2: (laughs) And your daughter. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and while Ireland features so prominently in her writing, so too now does London.
0: London. Feverishly I return, always running from Ireland, and built-up yellow brick calms me like green fields for others. And over Waterloo Bridge I go, holding on to my hat in the wind, lights strung out on the water, the babble on the 76 of 77 languages trundling to Dalston where the Turks are polishing their pomegranates and Joey and myself yapped through the basement window over our mugs of blackstrap molasses. This afternoon, standing in the biting cold at mile end, the familiar electric drone announcing 277 to Highbury Corner quickened me as if I'd come to a turn in the black night and saw in a blaze
2: the lights of home. We five Irish poets in this programme read and write by the light of home. There's really no getting away from it. Conor O'Callaghan acknowledges as much.
4: I live in England, but I now write more Ireland than I've ever written in my life, is the truth. I have now written a third novel that is something that I swore I would never do. It is a historical novel. And it's as if somehow the only Ireland that I can occupy as an exile from Ireland is an Ireland of the past. And I suppose one of the joys that I take in the writing now is that sense of writing in a register that is completely recognisable to an Irish reader. But to a non-Irish reader feels really strange and foreign. Do you
2: think that's something that keeps you writing, is the the wish to capture that, the ambition, to try and, and capture that sense of, of oneness with a, a place or a yeah. a community?
4: yeah. I often say that I will stop writing. And every book that I write, I think this will be my last book. And I think that now. I hope it won't be, but, you know. The book that I've written now is kind of like a young adult novel that is set in wartime Ireland, that it's in the voice of a 10-year-old boy. And it was written absolutely out of love for that coastline in the northeast just before the border, somewhere between Baltrey and Carlingford Lock. I love that place and it is the place that means more to me imaginatively than anywhere else.
2: So you've written yourself home, really?
4: I think that's what we always do. How we create homes. This is what we do. Every poem that we write, every novel that we write, they're like little sheds or houses that are a version of home. There are They are little rafts to bring ourselves home, if only to bring ourselves home temporarily.
2: No matter how many words we throw at the notion of home, no matter how long we live in England, does this feeling of being an outsider,
5: a stranger, ever go away? Sinead Morrissey again. I've got wonderful neighbours and I love living in the town where I'm living and I've got good friends at the university. But whether I'll actually ever feel at home there remains a moot question, but I'm not sure I feel at home in Belfast either. So I'm quite comfortable with that sense of being in between places that it doesn't bother me very much. The truth is,
2: if feeling a stranger is that much of a burden... We could always, circumstances permitting, decide to go back or to come back. But for most of us writers in this programme who live between the two, the in-betweenness of being Irish in England is a useful state. Isn't that what Elizabeth Bowen used to say, that the only time she felt at home was halfway across the Irish Sea in the middle of nowhere? You get used to the transaction between here and there. You learn to find the slight chafe between who you are and the conditions of the life you've chosen a productive one. I recently heard a relative visiting from Ireland ask someone, Are you long here? And the other person hadn't a clue what was being asked of them. Between that question and the silence that filled in for an answer lies a gap in which something of what you take for granted in language has to be dismantled. And that's a poet's work, that dismantling. We five poets in this programme do not represent the first generation of Irish poets who've moved to England for a livelihood, a family, a publisher or an adventure. Though many of my generation who graduated in the 80s hot-footed it across the Irish Sea. We were only following in the footsteps of so many other poets and novelists, as well as so many people who were neither. I remember once causing hilarity back then by declaring I planned on emigrating to London. The verb and the destination were misaligned. You didn't emigrate to London, you just went. But all the same, it wasn't the same as going from Burnfoot to Dublin or from Listowel to Galway. Something got swapped or jettisoned or lost. There was slippage, but thankfully there could also be gains, not least of which might be what Bernard O'Donoghue describes in his poem Westering Home as the old thin ache you thought that you'd forgotten. We have, each of us, fashioned that ache into language and have made there a home we could live with as much as a home to live in.
3: Westering Home Though you'd be pressed to say exactly where it first sets in, driving west through Wales, things start to feel like Ireland. It can't be the chapels with their clear grey windows, or the buzzards menacing the scooped valleys. In April have the blurred blackthorn hedges something to do with it, Or possibly the motorway, which seems to lose its nerve mile by mile. The houses up to a point, with their masoned gables, each upper window a raised eyebrow. More though than all of this, it's the architecture of the spirit, the old thin ache you thought that you'd forgotten. More smoke, admittedly, than flame, less tears than rain. And the whole business, neither here nor there, and therefore home. Home.
1: Writing Yourself Home was presented by Vona Grork. Vona Grork and John McAuliffe's poetry is published by the Gallery Press. Martina Evans and Sinead Morrissey's by Carsonette. Bernard O'Donoghue's by Faber and Conor O'Callaghan's novel We Are Not In The World is published by Doubleday. The producer was Claire Cunningham. Additional recording was supervised by Louise Williams. Sound mixed by Tinpot Productions and the programme was a Rockfinch production for RTE Lyric FM. The programme is available to podcast on the usual podcast platforms and on the RTE radio app.
4: This week's Lyric Feature was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland from the television licence fee. The producer for Lyric FM was Owen O'Kelly.
1: On next week's Lyric Feature, we'll have more poets and more places when Jessica Trainer brings us a poetic history of Bannehill in County Offaly. Jessica explores the history and folklore, meets some of the locals, and we hear new poems and a new song inspired by her research. And she also promises to attempt to answer that long-standing burning question as to the origin of the phrase, that beats Bannerher. That's A Place of Pointed Stones on the Lyric Feature, next Sunday at 6pm. John Kelly's Mystery Train is coming up at 7 o'clock and to take us up to that here's an Englishman writing about an Irish theme this is Arnold Bax's In Memoriam Patrick Pierce, which was written to commemorate Patrick Pierce after 1916 but didn't receive its first performance in Ireland until it was performed by the RTE National Symphony Orchestra as they were then called under the baton of Duncan Ward in 2016 Arnold Baxter's In Memoriam, Patrick Pierce.